absolutely love the word, and, uh, and I hope you do too. I don't know what uh, exactly we will cover. I know what is written. I, I wrote most of uh, most of the faith fundamental for this week, but I, I do want to tell you these meetings are fun to me. I hope you've enjoyed them. The elders set time out of their lives and their wives did just to be able to teach these. And it really is just the beginning. We're going to move on from here to Hebrews 6, the Faith Fundamentals, and then on through a couple chapters of Acts that we call Advanced Combat Training. But tonight, before we get there, uh, I think it's appropriate to end the Faith Fundamental series with a section on the Word of God. Do you have your booklets? Hold them up if you have them. Amen. I encourage you to make these keepsakes. I have the very first Bible curriculum I ever went through. My pastor called it Swing the Sickle, and it still sits in my office. And it's fairly well memorized, so I don't have to refer to it often, but I do get a kick out of what I felt the need to write down back then. And it shows me where I've grown and where I've come from. I encourage you to put all of your heart into studying the Word. It'll, it'll make a difference in your life. I have two mics set up here tonight for a reason. I would prefer not to read the Scriptures. Uh, not because I don't love them. I would like to hear them come from your voice. Jennifer and I crawled in bed around 2. I got out of bed around 5, and I have not been back home. We've been preaching, teaching, and preparing. And uh, that's for your benefit. So can you all help me and read a couple of scriptures for us? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Who will step up to a mic and pray to begin our meeting? Up to a mic. Yeah, it's going to require you to get up and come to a mic. that your Holy Spirit flowed in this place, God. God, you open up our minds, Father, so that we may see the mysteries that you have before us, Father. God, we just thank you for your holy word, Father. God, yourself incarnate in this, in this word, Father. God, it is used, God, for teaching, God, and rebuking, Father, in all facets of our life, God. We just ask, God, that you place all distractions aside, Father. God, that we're not worried about our left or right, Father. God, God, but our minds, will, and emotions come in line with your spirit, Father God, that we may absorb this word, Father God, not to boast, Father God, but to spread the word that you have given us, Father God, for the edifications of others, Father God, that we may not sit here stagnant, Father, but we may spread, Father, we may spread the word that you're going to give us tonight. God, we just thank you, Father, we ask that your words come out of Eric's mouth, Father, that you already anointed him for the task, Father God, we ask, Father, that all, all things come aside, Father God, that you will speak your words, Father God, that you will... Give him the notions that he needs to, Father God. We just thank you for this time to meet and open, Father God. We're not being persecuted, Father. We just thank you for the word, Father God, that we have such abundance of it, Father. I ask that we not take it for granted. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'd like to cover some things that are not in your syllabus. You can write them in the notes next to uh, your syllabus. If we were only going to cover the things that were actually printed in the syllabus, you could have stayed home and read it. Is it okay with y'all if we jump ship a little bit? Yeah. If I had it to write again, I would include some things. But you're writing it now, so we can go from there. Uh, most of the time in the uh, English-speaking world, we divide the Bible into two sections. We divide it into an older and a newer testament. Uh, usually just said old and new. But who wants to read anything that's old? So in this church, we've taken to calling it the older and the newer but I'd like to give you another couple words that um, are more authentic names for the scripture. Uh, have you ever heard the word Tanakh? Raise your hand if you've heard the word Tanakh. 
there are lots of ways that you spell tanach to try to get that sound. Many times it's T-A-N-A-C-H, tanach. This isn't an acronym in Hebrew. Uh, the Torah is the first part of the Bible. It's the first five books. Uh, and it also can refer to all of the Older Testament. It depends on how specifically you mean it when you speak. Like, we're reading the Bible, or we're reading all of the Bible, right? So when you speak about law, we could be speaking about the Torah, the first five books, or all 39 books of the Older Testament. The T in Tanakh comes from Torah. The next grouping, the prophets, is where we get the N sound. For Tanakh, that N part of the word, the middle syllable. This is Nevi'im, N-E-V-I, apostrophe, I-M. This is all the groupings of the prophets. When Jesus quoted from the Bible, he quoted from the law, and he quoted from the prophets, and he quoted from the writings. It was very common for Hebrews to quote from all three sections of the Bible when proving an important point. The last part, the writings, are the ketvim, and this is where you get that last C or K sound. If you wanted to try to write that, it would be K-E-T-U-V-I-M. This is where you get the word Tanakh. When referring to the Tanakh, it's always 39 books. When referring to the Torah, it is either 5 books or 39, depending on the context that it's being used. The Bible comes to us largely from the Jewish people. Now, when I say largely from the Jewish people, that is a gross understatement. It comes to us almost exclusively from the Jewish people. In fact, you can scarcely find a biblical writer that was not Jewish. Some say Luke was not, but I could make a pretty strong case for why I think he is. Those arguments laid aside, no other people on the planet received God's special revelation, protected it, and transmitted it like the Jewish people have, and that's a very special thing. All of the races were designed for different things. Not one thing only, but we all have different talents. I mean, can anybody doubt that the Germans have uh, an amazing mind for engineering? I mean, the Jewish people were built to receive God's word, to protect it, and to transmit it. They did things that are different than we do. And in ancient times, the Bible was viewed differently than it is now. In fact, when you think of some of these things, you all have heard of the historian Josephus? We'll speak about him later. Josephus said about the educational system around the time of Jesus that it wasn't seen as a luxury or an option. That education is key to survival. By education, he means biblical education. The Torah was seen as so central to life that if you lost it, you had lost everything, including your life. He then added these words, and it's a quote, Above all else, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. One of the major debates in ancient Israel was not if or how or when you taught your children, but how early you could start. So this question among the rabbis in Jesus' day was, how early can you begin to teach children the Bible? And in a Jewish writing called the Baba Batra, in the 21st chapter, in the section marked A, this is a tractate in the Jewish Talmud, it says, under the age of six, we will not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, we seek to stuff him as we would seek to stuff an ox with grain. This meant that every Jewish child, everywhere, from the time they were very young, were being taught the word. This is very important when we get into some of these higher critical arguments that people get into later about how do you know that this that we have today matches that that we had then. Right-thinking people could say, if it changed, when did it change? 
And if it changed significantly and thousands of people were memorizing it and had copies of it, why did they not protest and where are those protests recorded? Are you following what I'm telling you? If we all saw the same Super Bowl and then the next year somebody named the winner that was incorrect, would they not be denounced? All of these theories that have come about usually focused on places like the History Channel. Someone will show up and say, you know, Moses didn't actually write this. Somebody else wrote it much, much later and they simply compiled it. Uh, in the year 700 or 800 BC. If this were the case, how did you convince Jews for all of those years to keep the feast? How did you convince Jews to keep kosher? How did the Jews maintain a historical presence in the land if they did not have these books? And then, maybe the most amazing thing of all, how would you get Jewry all over the world to agree unanimously on your compilation of books? I've been to Israel, friends. Some of you have been. You can't get two Jews to agree on any one thing anywhere in Israel other than this land is ours. How would you get them to accept your compilation? See, these arguments quickly, when put to the test, fall by the wayside. Tonight, I'm not here to prove the inerrancy of God's Word. That is a matter of the Holy Spirit. But I think as we work through some of these things, you will see that some of the arguments that have so dominated our pulpits, so dominated our college universities, are absolutely erroneous. They're without merit. And they only work on the naive, those who have not studied for themselves, those who have not looked into it for themselves. Nobody here seriously doubts that Julius Caesar lived. And most Bible students have no idea how much more proof there is that Jesus of Nazareth lived than Julius Caesar. They have no idea how many hundreds of years it difference in documentation there are. And I'm not expecting you to walk around as an encyclopedia, but I do want you to know where to find these things because it's important that you know how to take your stand. Now, I could teach on the entire Jewish educational system as it relates to the Bible, but it's not worth it time-wise today. I would like to tell you there were three houses of education. The first is Bet Sefer. This is House of the Book. The second was Bet Talmud. This was House of Learning. The last was Bet Midrash. This was House of Study. Between the ages of 6 and the age of 30, all Jewish men were engaged in Torah learning. If they could not get into one of the schools, if they could not master the concepts of the schools, which ranged from memorizing the first five books of the Bible to memorizing all 39 and the oral arguments concerning them. That's quite a bit, is it not? At some point, every person reached their maximum saturation. At some place, every person could go no further. This left a very elite class, a special class that men like Shaul, Solus, uh, uh, Shaul Paulus of Tarsus belonged to. He was a chief student of a man named Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hillel. For this man to be in this position, he had to have memorized 39 books of the Bible verbatim. He had to memorize what other rabbis had said about them. Many times we don't understand what's written in the Newer Testament because we don't understand the men who wrote it. The entire discourse in Romans 7, for instance, is an argument that he received from his teacher. It's well recorded in Jewish history. We find these things everywhere. It's said that Gamaliel could argue from all three parts of the Tanakh about the resurrection and name seven verses in each part backwards or forwards without any problem when debating with a Sadducee. How many of us have such love for the word? It's very difficult for us, I understand. This is not written in our culture. When we read it, it doesn't always rhyme like it does in Hebrew. It doesn't always have the same rhythm and meter like it does in Hebrew. It is different, and yet it is so important. 
You have a key quote written in your booklet. Would somebody run to a microphone and read that key quote? And while you do that, I will find another. By somebody, I mean you, Brandon. Go ahead. That's good. Hurry, hurry, hurry. What's your key quote? God has spoken to man. That is the great truth behind our concern for the Bible. And because he has been pleased to speak to us, we dare not neglect his word. If God has spoken to man, do we have a responsibility? Listen, when my mother spoke in my household, she expected to be heard. If you didn't hear her, I'm not being ugly, there was, there was a price to pay for that. Because she expected you to hear. How much more do you think our Heavenly Father expects you to heed His Word? And yet there's no more neglected book in most people's house. D.L. Moody was a man of God. He said every Bible ought to be bound in elephant hide because it should be the most read book in a person's house. And I want to tell you through the centuries, it always has been. It's just this last century that it's not. We've made it so commonplace that it is no longer valuable. You would think that a Bible in every hand would be a great thing, except a Bible in every hand meant you could find one anywhere and it was no longer precious. Isn't that amazing? We even take liberty to print just New Testaments. Or to print a New Testament and, I don't know, let's grab Psalms and Daniel. Who gave us the right to do something like that? I think that the Bible is 66 contiguous books of Revelation. Your key quote basically was to, to show you if God has spoken to man, we have an obligation. I have another quote for you. George, go to that first slide. This is an inscription that was found in an ancient Bible, a Bible in London. It says, the Bible is the greatest of all books ever penned by men. To study it diligently is the most worthy of all possible pursuits. To clearly understand what the Lord is saying to us through its pages is truly the most notable and highest of my goals. The application to my heart, mind, and spirit of the truths of the Word of God through the Holy Spirit's gift of understanding and my subsequent obedience. To that revelation is my supreme purpose and duty. We don't even know who wrote it. His name wasn't in it, but he obviously loved it. It was kept in a house among his treasured possessions. I would like to ask you a question tonight. The question, quite simply, is are you able to believe the Bible is true? And if you conclude that it is true, what does that mean for you? We have some key scriptures that are written. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If the Word says that the scripture is useful for four things... If it says it's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, and we neglect any part of the word, what are we missing? Well, we're missing teaching. We're missing rebuking that might save us heartache in our life. We're missing correcting that might have kept us from years of error. But maybe most importantly, we're missing training in righteousness. Next time somebody asks you if you go to a full gospel church, perhaps we should rethink that answer. What part would you like to leave out? What gives us the right to say, no, we just want, we just want training in righteousness. Can you have it without the others? Or to say, no, we just want encouragement. You know, all that correcting and rebuking is not God's best for me. You cannot do these things, friend. The Bible is in its totality the Word of God, and if you eliminate any part of it, you might as well have thrown out all of it. Once we decide that one thing a man says is untrue, how can you trust the rest of what he says? 
You've been in that car dealership before, haven't you? I used to sit on both sides of that table at times. And I would hear a partner say, can I be honest with you? And I'm thinking, well, what were you five minutes ago? That's a scary thought, isn't it? I look for a new salesman. All right? If any part of this Bible is not true, if any part of it can be thrown out, then how would you know what should be kept? And what would give you the right to make that kind of decision? Now, I understand why learned men have struggled with these things. When you study biblical history, it is difficult. When you find out that God used very flawed men to do amazing things, and that He has throughout history, it's hurtful. Does anybody doubt that Martin Luther had a wonderful contribution to the world? I mean, even secular historians say Martin Luther had a wonderful contribution. He also hated Jews. Yeah. That is a difficult thing to swallow. How can fresh water and salt water come from the same human being? And yet we find these answers in the Bible. I'm trusting that while we read these things tonight, we will find out that God worked through history to give you incontrovertible evidence so that your heart could rest secure. And I want to tell you, as dark as our times are, as difficult as it can be, as many skeptics have lined up, we've never had more reason to trust. As time has gone on, the Bible has not become less trustworthy. It's been proven more trustworthy at every turn. The more skeptics that look at something, and yet the genuineness remains genuine, the more tested and tried it is. There's been no book in history that's been put to the test like this one has. In Jeremiah 1.9, this would be our next slide, Joy. We see the way in which we can say Scripture is God-breathed. It says, Then the Lord reached out His hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. I want you to understand that when we talk about verbal plenary inspiration, or we say God breathed His Scriptures into man, we're not saying that God simply put them into a trance, nor are we saying that they got to decide what they wrote and didn't write. We're saying that God put His Word inside of them. And that what they wrote was His Word and nothing less, with nothing added and nothing taken away. You see that written in 2 Peter also on your screen. I don't know whether you all can read that from the distance you're at, so I'll read it to you. 2 Peter 1.20 Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by God's Spirit. I think one of your other key scriptures in your book said in Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words or He will rebuke you and prove you a liar. We need to make a very clear one thing. There is no middle ground on this issue. Either the Bible is the Word of God and these statements are true, or the Bible is not the Word of God and none of them are to be trusted. But you cannot pick and choose what you do and do not trust because He says if you add to His Word, He will rebuke you. In the book of Revelation, he says, if you take away from the words of this prophecy, he will rebuke you. He'll curse you. So we either are to accept all of it as the complete word of God or we're to accept none of it. Before the night's over, I hope to make it easier for you to accept all of it and for you to not hang your head in scientific circles. 
Our ministries began on college campuses. If there's a question out there, we have heard it. We were treated as scum of the earth, uneducated fools, because we dared to believe the word. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we never had a problem with a, a professor, never had a problem with a grad student, never did we have a problem unless we simply did not know God's word. And every time I have been stumped, every time I have thought, oh, wow, the Bible surely must be wrong. I simply had not read far enough. I would encourage you with all of your struggles, with all of your doubts, to keep reading. The Bible has a way of taking skeptics and making them the most ardent defenders of the Scripture. In your introduction, you see a little bit about the way the Bible was put together. Says the Bible, we believe the 66 books of the Bible are wholly inspired by God himself, solely authoritative on matters of theology, worship, ethics, and completely infallible in truth they proclaim. This is the claim that the biblical Christianity makes. Therefore, the foundation of everything we'll learn about in our time together, the word of God, God himself, humanity, Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy Spirit, and the church. You guys have been studying those things. They're based on the truth that's contained in the Bible. The Bible is 66 contiguous books of canon of Scripture, almost exclusively written, protected, and transmitted by the Jewish people. These four areas that you see, the quantity and quality of biblical manuscripts, the internal consistency of the Bible's message, archaeological findings and their attestation to biblical events, prophetic proclamations and their fulfillment, are going to be things that help you understand your reasons for confidence in the scripture. Go ahead and go to that next slide for me. In Psalm 19, somebody get to this microphone and read Psalm 19, 7. And at this microphone, John 10, 35. Any translation will do. To be clear, one thing that we know, none of our translations are absolutely perfect. The actual word that came to us is perfect. And these translations are the very best that men could offer as to what they believe these original words mean. The beautiful thing is that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the availability of many translations will always help you ferret out a difficulty. Go ahead, Joel. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The Bible makes the claim that the word of God is perfect, that it is trustworthy, that it is right, that it is radiant that it is sure, that it is altogether righteous, precious, sweet, and rewarding. And then Jesus himself said about the scripture, you can read this. If you call them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot, cannot, be broken. cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart at his very own and sent him into the world? Jesus himself said the scripture is unbreakable. The scripture cannot be broken. He's quoting a tenet within Pharisaical Judaism, and he is also expressing his adherence to it. If you believe this about Psalm 82, and God said this to these men, 
then why are you having a difficulty with what I'm telling you since the scripture cannot be broken? It is immutable. It is unchangeable. The scripture is the scripture. Jesus affirmed it. The Psalms affirm it. The Bible itself makes this claim. Let me tell you some reasons why you can trust it. That next slide, John. The Older Testament. It comes to us as 39 books considered by both Jews and Christians to be inspired. Jesus quotes from these books. They were attested to in his time, so all believers should be able to accept the 39 books. As we look at them, they're put together, updated, collected, however you want to think about it, over a period of about 800 years. When we say updated, please don't think that we, we changed them. What we're saying is we have First Chronicles and we have a Second Chronicles. The chronicler kept going with his work. The original text of the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew. There are a few portions in Aramaic. There are a few loner words from Egypt, Persia, Greece, just like there is in Texas. I mean, how many of you would understand from Louisiana if we said little Lanyap? Well, those of you who've been in Louisiana know what we're talking about. How about you guys in Texas if I say, hey, y'all, you want to go tubing? You understand this is plural for you. We borrow words in geographical areas. The Bible was no different. Three of the major Hebrew texts used are the Mesoritic, the Samaritan Pentateuch, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. In addition to these manuscripts, the Latin Vulgate and the Greek Septuagint are of great value for translation. We're going to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls in a minute, but what is on the board in front of you is about scribes and fences. The Jewish scribes were men who carefully copied out by hand manuscripts of the Old Testament. They were called Mesoritic, which comes from the Hebrew word for wall or fence. Their extreme care in meticulous counting the letters of the Bible created a fence around the law to defend its absolute accuracy. Here's an example of how that worked. In the book of Genesis alone, they said that there were 78,064 Hebrew letters. In Genesis, just to give you an example, the Kaf has 4,152 letters. The Shin, a, a letter in the Hebrew alphabet, has 8,448 letters. Can you imagine? You write these texts from right to left, from top to bottom, and then you count. You don't read it. You count to see how many shins there are. If we have not got the right number of shins, you have to get rid of the text. It was not suitable to be recopied. This would be similar to taking, I don't know, Shakespeare's work. You have his original. You copy it down, you find out how many letter E's are used in it. And if you come up with a different number in your copy than in his copy, throw it away. You have to start again. Can you imagine what that was like? Somebody read Isaiah 40, verse 8 from this microphone. And over here, Matthew 5, verse 18. Come on, got to hop up. We still need somebody on the right. Forgive me on these slides, those Hebrew letters did not print on our uh, on our screen. Apparently the printer fonts couldn't handle it. Go ahead, Nolan. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. How can you know that the word of God has stood the same forever? 
One reason is the people that he entrusted it to from early childhood begin learning it. It's their life's work. It's uh, counted, copied, attested to. Every family member checks it. A job in an early synagogue that the synagogue ruler would have would simply be to listen to make sure it was never read incorrectly so that nobody would get the wrong idea. What do you have? Matthew 5, 18. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. You can have all kind of interpretations of this passage. We could look at it and argue about the efficacy of the law. We could look at it and argue about faith and deeds. But the plain reading of the text, the Peshat, if you will, simply says that not even a single letter will ever be allowed to pass out of the law. Do you believe Jesus can save you? I don't think you'd be here if you didn't. If he can save your soul from the depths of hell, do you think he can preserve a letter in a Bible? Well, I would say so too, and he promised it. The world religions that say things like Jesus was a prophet, but they don't believe in the authentic scripture of God, they have a problem because the prophet said he would not let a single letter be corrupted. Not one. So how then can we call him a prophet and not believe what the prophet says? It's disingenuous at the very best. Let's go to that next slide. The Yemenite and Mazoric manuscripts. This is really an interesting thing that illustrates the point. And I knew that many of you didn't have access to this, but these books are in the library, and I'm going to give you copies of all of them, at least in your um, suggested readings. As proof of the incredible accuracy of this transmission through the centuries, consider the Mazoric and Yemenite translations of the Torah. Over a millennium ago, Yemenite Jews were separated from their brother Jews in the Middle East and in Europe. Despite separate transmissions and copying of their Torah manuscripts, a thousand years later, only nine letters out of some 300, 4,805 letters in the Yemenite Torah manuscript differ from the accepted Hebrew Masoretic text of the Torah. Nine letters changed in over 300,000 Hebrew letters. A variation of 0 .002, or another way to say it is one five hundredth of one percent. Not one of these nine variant letters in the Yemenite Torah changed the meaning of a significant word. So what happened over time is like in my wife's family. They were called Holly when they first were in England. Over time, that pronunciation changed and it became Hall, but we're still speaking of the same people. Over the course of a thousand years, nine letters changed, and they had to do with pronunciation. None of them had to do with meaning. In other words, it would be like comparing two civilizations that had no contact with each other after a millennium. And you could lay their written work beside each other and see that it was exactly the same. Is that reason for confidence? I would say that's reason for confidence. One of my favorite is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's go to that slide. Now, we live in a beautiful age. We live in a time period where right now, with that web address, you can pull up the Dead Sea Scrolls on your cell phone. When I first saw the Dead Sea Scrolls, I was 1997 in Jerusalem. I snuck a camera in with my buddy who was a little bit hefty and kind of hid in his paddy. We went next to the security guard. One of us talked to him while the other snapped a picture. He saw it. And then we sprinted for the exit and dove in a cab because you are not allowed to take a picture. <laughs> then when we got back and developed $400 worth of film, 
the only pictures that did not develop were those pictures because of a special glass that they put so that you could not take pictures. They came back completely blacked out. No light went through that glass. But today, in fact, about two hours ago, I took a screenshot. At this web address, you can pull up a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls Book of Isaiah. You can click on any verse in the original. When I say original, I'm talking about you are looking at the animal hide with pores in it. Tears in it. And it dates between 68 AD and 200 BC. Before this was found, friends, in the Qumran Valley, the great debate of the 40s, 50s, was how do you know that the book of Isaiah you're reading today is the same that Jesus is quoting from? Yes, Jesus affirmed the book of Isaiah written in 720 B.C. And, and maybe it was the same in Jesus' day, but certainly between Jesus' day and now it's changed. This proved that it didn't. And what you see on the screen there, I just happened to blow up one verse. Isaiah 53.1 Who would have believed our report? And to whom have the arm of Hashem been revealed? Hashem is the way that the Jews say, the Lord. It's completely identical to our copies. Is that reason for confidence? I would say that it is. It's ironic the way the Dead Sea Scrolls came about in 1947. We got, we got little Bedouin kids. They're looking for their goats. This is not a joke. It's true. I've, I've been in the Qumran Valley. I've repelled in the hills there. I actually tore my pants and had to yeah, so that's a story we won't tell. <laughs> they didn't want to go in and look in every cave for their little goats. So they started throwing rocks in the caves, hoping that the goat would make a noise if he was in there. And they heard jars break. This is how the most significant archaeological find of our time happened. Bedouin kids who didn't really want to look for the lost goat. And look at this. Look at how it confirms this. The DDS were discovered accidentally. And after this rock tossing into the small cave, one of the shepherds heard the sound of shattering pottery. The next day, the men returned and discovered several clay pots, one of which contained multiple manuscripts. Written and preserved on animal hides, several months later, it was discovered that one of these documents contained the entire book of Isaiah. Guys, it's 24 feet long. You're looking at it. It used to be in a shrine called the Shrine of the Book. It wrapped all the way around the room. Wow. Every jot, every tittle intact. I've listed this website because I have spent hours looking at it, marveling at the ancient Hebrew, wondering how somebody could write and it looks just like a typewriter on an animal scroll before big pens were around. There are roughly 40,000 fragments which make up almost 500 separate documents. Some of these texts are substantially complete, but most are fragmentary. This much is written there. But there's so much about the Dead Sea Scrolls that I didn't write in this. It says that there's a hundred of these documents that contain at least some portion of the Old Testament. I didn't tell you about the ones that have portions of the New Testament. They released the Dead Sea Scrolls as they were translated a little bit over each time, and some, for whatever reason, after 20 years, weren't translated. Imagine that. And the ones that have taken the longest to translate are the ones that would be the most interesting to Christians. You can go to that next slide. 
1991, the world was astonished to hear that one of the unpublished scroll fragments included intriguing references to a Messiah who suffered crucifixion for the sins of men. You think that's relevant or important? The scroll was translated by Dr. Robert Eisman, professor of Middle East religions of California State University. Don't hold California against him. It's not his fault. It's where he got a job. He declared the text is of most far-reaching significance because it shows that whatever group was responsible for these writings was operating in the same general scriptural and messianic framework of early Christianity. Although the original scroll scholars still claim that there was no evidence about early Christianity in the unpublished scrolls, this new scroll contradicted their statements. This single scroll is earth-shaking in its importance. As Dr. Norman Gold, professor of Jewish history at the University of Chicago said, it shows that contrary to what some of the editors say, there are lots of surprises in these scrolls, and this is one of them. Come on, saints. They found it because a boy threw a rock into a cave. And in these scrolls, there are literally hundreds of references to things like sons of light. And you can hear 1 John in it. There are literally hundreds of references to the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. These are all titles that Luke ascribed to Jesus. And it was found in our time. If we were sitting here in 1940, Israel would not be a nation. If we were sitting here in 1940, the higher critics would still have an arm up on you. We would not have proof that dates back 2,000 years to prove that your Bible is exactly the same today as it was then. But today we have such proof. The damage has already been done, though. In some surveys taken around the time 1997 among evangelical pastors, more than 50% could not answer the question that they totally agree that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Some somewhat agree. Some partially agree. You can find this information in Grant Jeffers' book, Signature of God. These men would do us a better service just to be honest and get out of the profession. Next time somebody tells you it's their job, you might take them seriously. They may just be there for the retirement benefits. The earthly ones, I mean. When we're thinking about the Newer Testament, not just the Older Testament, mostly represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think it's important to remember not only are there the 27 books that we have there, three synoptic gospels and then John, all of the writings of Paul and these things, but how widespread this is. Over 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts in whole or portion exist today. It's actually well over that number. We picked the most conservative numbers when writing this because we didn't want to quibble over details. If 5,000 is not enough, is 5,400 enough? You understand what I'm saying? The oldest fragments of these texts date back to the second century, some within 50 or 100 years of their original writing. Complete copies of the entire New Testament date back to the fourth century, only 300 years after the events took place. In comparison, Let's look at the table on this next page. Julius Caesar wrote the Gaelic Wars. Now that may not mean anything to you, but this is one of the great works in history. The Gaelic Wars. It has to do with his military conquests over Gaul. Right? Don't you love to write your own stories of victory? Our oldest available text was 900 years after it happened, but there are no credible historians that doubt that it happened. How do they bridge that 900-year gap? Did they have people like the Masordics writing it down? 
Did they have a culture entirely dedicated to preserving Julius Caesar's work? They didn't. In fact, Rome falls out of existence altogether. Unless we're speaking of some slightly darker spiritual entity. Where is their language today? It's a dead language. Where is their religion today? Well, that's another subject. But you understand that the things that make a nation, borders, language, religion, Rome's failed in every, every accord, but there is an Israel today. There's a Hebrew language today. There's a Hebrew religion today. Because God himself said it would stand. We have reason for confidence. Yeah. Nobody doubts Julius Caesar lived, but we're all going to doubt that Jesus lived. Julius Caesar's writings are 900 years after he wrote them. We have copies of the New Testament. Portions of the New Testament within 50 years of the event. And that's not good enough? What other ancient work has ever subjected to this kind of scrutiny? The history of the Peloponnesian Wars by Thucydides. He wrote it in 460 BC. The next copy we have is 1300 years. Tacitus is an amazing guy. He wrote histories and he wrote annals. He's considered Rome's greatest historian. He was a governor or a senator. It's hard to know which. I found different books that said different things about him. Perhaps he was both. And he's a historian. He wrote about Tiberius, Claudius, Nero. The works that we have that are attributed to him are 900 years after his life, but they're quoted every day with complete confidence. How do we know what kind of guy Nero was? Tacitus told us. Nobody doubts it. Why must we face this kind of scrutiny? Could it be that there is a demonic force that is trying to erode your confidence in the Word of God? Because if it is the Word of God, it demands a response from you. See, I believe that the Spirit of God has drawn you here. I believe that the Spirit of God is teaching you about these things and now is building your armory of confidence so that you might know the truth upon which you have taken your stand. Luke wrote in the book of Acts. He wrote to Theophilus so that he might know. He gave him a formerly, in his former book, he gave him a detailed account. These men wanted the world to know. They were not hiding in a corner trying to masquerade themselves as something other than what they were. When we think about the New Testament, it's probably important to think about how widespread this is. Go back to that slide. It's a, the New Testament is the most widely quoted book in history from the moment of its writing by the apostles into today. Ignatius, the bishop in Antioch in AD 70, the minister responsible for several churches in Syria, he quoted extensively from the New Testament in his writings, and we have them. Clement, the bishop of Rome in AD 70, He's mentioned by Paul in uh, Philemon 4.3. I'm sorry, Philippians 4.3. He is also quoted extensively from the New Testament only 40 years after the resurrection. And we have his writings. According to Professor Greenlee, the quotations from the New Testament are so extensive in early history that the New Testament could virtually be reconstructed from them without the use of the New Testament manuscript. Historians have recovered almost 100,000 manuscripts, according to him, and letters from the first centuries of this era. There's never been a book that has been copied like this. Never been a book that has been spread like this. Now let me ask you, if we have 99,000 copies of something, and I propose a new one, an entirely different one, one that is based on the Da Vinci Code or something stupid like that, 
don't you think the world would have been in an uproar? Don't you think people would have publicly decried these things? Where is all of that? It doesn't exist because it didn't happen. Are you hearing me? The church fiercely guarded the Newer Testament. It guarded the Older Testament. The canon was considered closed. Even the books that we call apocryphal now, at the time they were translated into the Latin Vulgate around the year 400 by Jerome, he clearly said, these are not scripture. I've only put them in these copies of the Bible so that they will be preserved. No one thought they were scripture. Until around the 11th century when the church of its day needed to justify doctrines not found in the word of God. Then they suddenly said they were scripture. It helped fundraise. Let's move to this next slide. When we're thinking about the Newer Testament. I mentioned Tacitus earlier. Cornelius Tacitus was a Roman historian, a governor of Asia, which is Turkey, in the year A.D. 112. Listen to what he referred to. He referred to the persecution that the Christians caused by Emperor Nero's false accusation that the Christians had burned Rome. That's his topic. And here's what he says. Crestus, his word for Christ, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again. Not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. Tacitus, as a careful historian, was with access to all the government archives of Rome, confirmed many details of the gospel in writing a negative statement about the gospel. I mean, this is not a man who is an adherent to the gospel. This is a man who is an opponent of the gospel, and yet he's confirming details like Pontius Pilate, something that many people have questioned. Isn't that amazing? How about Suetonius? You getting there? Suetonius. Suetonius was the official historian of Rome in AD 125. In a book that he wrote called The Life of Claudius, the 25th point four chapter, he referred to the Christians causing disturbances in Rome, which led to their being banished from the city. He identifies the sect of Christians as being derived from that instigation of Crestus, which was his spelling of the name of Christ. Why did these men face death and flogging and jeering? Why did they do that? My favorite comes from Pliny the Younger. Don't you love all these words? One day I hope to be Eric the Younger. Right? Y'all need to go find somebody who's named Eric who's older that will be in the church and we can fulfill that. Plinius Segundus, known as Pliny the Younger, declared that Christians were, quote, in the habit of meeting on certain fixed days before it was light, when they sang an alternate verse and hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves to a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, adultery, never to falsify their word, almost like they kept the Ten Commandments, Mom, I thought you'd like that, nor to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver up. Pliny was the governor of a Roman province of Bithynia, which is now Turkey, in AD 112. He wrote to the emperor requesting instructions about the interrogation of Christians whom he was persecuting. Are you hearing this? This man is persecuting Christians. And this is his testimony. In his epistles, his letters, he states that these believers would not worship the emperor Trajan and would not curse their leader, Jesus the Christ, even under extreme torture. Pliny described the Christians as people who love the truth at any cost. 
Do you have reason for confidence that the things that we have about the Newer Testament are true? I have just a couple more and then we'll move on. Are y'all bored? No. Do y'all have these things just laying around your house? I mean, is this next to Time Magazine? Men have dedicated their lives to these things. And praise God, we get to glean in the fields of their work. Another cooperating historian, Lucian of Samosata. Lucian lived in Samosata a century after Christ. In his book, The Passing of Peregrinius, he declared that Jesus was worshipped by his followers and was the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced a new cult into the world. But I want you to think about this. These men, they're not believers. They're not supporters. But they're affirming things like the crucifixion, things like their adherence to the word, things like Pontius Pilate. That is an amazing fact. Here with Josephus. You are, I already told you a little about him. This is maybe his most controversial statement he ever made. Now, it's worth noting by guys like Philip Schaff, uh, other men who recorded the histories and the writing, all of Josephus' works have this inscription, and yet this is the only inscription that's questioned in all of his works. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the, the divine prophets had foretold, these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. By the way, Josephus was an Orthodox Jew. Josephus never converted to Christianity as far as anyone knows, but he certainly seemed to admire Jesus. He fought against Rome and later became a historian for Rome. He was a survivor. He dated to the time of Christ. It's, it's amazing to me that in volumes, that if you put them on the ground and raise them this high, nobody questions a single statement in them except that one. Could it be that there's a demonic force working to erode your confidence in the gospel? This is our last of the historians, at least as I remember it. Julius Africanus and Thallus. These guys are arguing. Julius Africanus was a North African Christian teacher writing in AD 215. He recorded the writing of a pagan historian by the name Thallus who lived in AD 52, shortly after the resurrection of Christ. So what we have is we have Julius Africanus who is writing about an earlier historian's work. Thallus had recorded in his history that there was a miraculous darkness covering the face of the earth at Passover in AD 32. Is that striking any bells? Yes. Thallus is a pagan. But he said that there was a darkness in AD 32 at Passover. Friends, Jesus was crucified at Passover. It went dark at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at Passover. Julius Africanus records, Thallus in his third book of his histories explains away this darkness as an eclipse of the sun and it was unreasonable as it seems to me. Julius is commenting in the 2nd century, 215, that he doesn't, he doesn't think Thallus came to the right conclusion. Julius explained that Thallus' theory was unreasonable because a solar eclipse could not have occurred at the same time as a full moon, and it was the season of the Paschal full moon that Christ died. Do you hear their argument? These are two men that are within 56, uh, 56 AD, and he said it happened. 
He's not a believer. What reason would he have to cooperate the New Testament? But they did. They were not trying to cooperate the New Testament. In fact, he was trying to attack it. But there were certain things that were so well known, so widespread. It didn't occur to him that one day that people would question whether or not the whole earth had gone black at a certain time. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? These men didn't even know what to attack. They didn't know how far we would fall. They would have taken their stand somewhere else. When we're thinking about the New Testament, when we're thinking about the historians and the widespread uh, use of it, when we're thinking about the Older Testament, I just would like to submit this one thing before moving on. It is not possible to pass off a lie on someone successfully if copies of the truth are everywhere. At some point it would be compared. Do you remember that when Paul wrote the letters, he sometimes said, you know, read these to the brothers, pass them around the churches? The, these things were, were so cherished and so taken care of that the men who did try to introduce false gospels of Barnabas and things like that were run out of town. There were church councils held and they were rebuked publicly. Their works were burned and thrown away. Today, you can get on the History Channel and, and say that those works are the real ones because they were burned. The men just were scared of what they might be in the Bible. And you don't even realize you're actually endorsing our point. They were willing to take to task anyone that had an inauthentic copy. You understand what I'm saying? Have you ever loved anything that much? You should read Dave Friedman's book, They Loved the Torah. These people gave their lives for it. They gave their lives for it. What an insult it is to the entire Jewish race to treat this book like it's a collection of fables. I know that for the most part nobody in here would do that. But I want you to understand, this is not blind faith. Blind faith would be if he'd given you no reason to trust him and you just trust him anyway. He's given you every reason to trust him. I'm going to give you a few fringish reasons to trust him. I'm not a, I, I, all I know to tell you about this is I find it interesting. I'm not asking any of these things to prove a point. But if we're going to talk about the internal consistency of the word, if we're going to talk about the men who wrote the word and how 44 different men wrote it over a period of 1,000 to 1,600 years, if we're going to talk about the scarlet thread that goes all the way through it, do you remember earlier I told you that the Masoretics counted letters and they knew how many letters were in each one? Well, this is because in Hebrew and in Greek, letters also have numerical values. Now, I wish somebody like Fred Hall were here tonight. This would be so interesting to him. And perhaps he knows it. He's a brilliant man. But if you know how many letters there are, and you've counted them, and every letter has a numeric value, books have numeric values too. There were so many ways to check and recheck the scripture to make sure that what you had was correct. Let's move to that next slide. What you see here is on the left, you see Alf, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Val, Zane. All of these are Hebrew letters. Next to the Hebrew letter, you see a numerical equivalent. This is because there was no Arabic style, Arabic, Arabic numeral to write in those days. This was not widespread throughout the world. So instead, your letters served a dual purpose. On the right, you see Alpha, Beta, Gamma, De Delta, Epsilon, Zeta. These were not fraternities back then. <laughs> they weren't. They were letters. They were letters with numerical values. 
when you say Kyrios, you use Christos, which is basically what that fish means on the back of a car, it has a numerical value. It adds up to 3,168. Now again, I'm only telling you this because I find it interesting. I mean, it's my prerogative. When you start a church, you get to do that sometimes. Let's move to the next slide. I think they'll like this. If you were going to draw a box around the globe, every square on that box of, of, of the earth, every single square, every side of it, that box would have a perimeter of 3,100, I'm sorry, 31,680 miles. It's almost as if, through the use of math, it's a way of saying his name is written on the earth. If that one seems a bit of a stretch, oh, just wait. Now, sometimes we drop the zeros off, and we drop the zeros off because I'm old and I don't want to have to say all of those zeros. But you understand that 3,168 times 10 to the whatever power is just because we've dropped zeros off, right? Okay, let's move to the next one. Oh, we skipped one, I think. This is, uh, uh, I took a picture with my cell phone while in the bathroom at the church of a book <coughs> because I didn't want to have to draw this. And what this is, is this is the Earth's crust, the inhabitable portion of the Earth's crust. No matter how far you dig into the ground, you can't get so far that you hit magma or you can't live there. <laughs> no matter how high you go above the Earth's crust onto a mountain, there's a certain height at which it stops. If we take the Earth's crust and the Earth's atmosphere, it's 60 miles. If you take those 60 miles and you multiply them times 5,280 feet in each mile, we get 316,800 feet. Mm. Or another way to say that would be 3,168 times 10 to a certain power. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? Mm. It's almost as if he drew a box around the world with his name and then stretched a ruler from the surface of the earth to the tip of the atmosphere and mm. wrote his name. What's the next one? The distance from the sun to the earth is 93 million miles. Can you say that's a long way? No. Now, when I say that's the distance, it's the mean distance. The earth has an elliptical orbit, but this is its furthest and its shortest and the mean distance between them. If you take 93 million miles and drop the zeros so that we're multiplying 93 times 528 or 5,280 feet, and then we convert that to inches, and then... You divide it by the speed of light. How long it takes light to travel that distance. We have 3,168. It's almost as if Jesus is writing his name from the sun to the earth. Let's go to the next one. If you were going to draw a circle around the earth and the moon, because the earth doesn't orbit alone. It has a satellite that orbits with it. And together they orbit as a unit. It moves our oceans, all of those things that you know about. If you were going to draw a circle around the earth and the moon, the perimeter of the outer circle would have the number 3,168 times 10 to such and such power. It's almost as if his name was written there. Let's keep going. If you took each one of the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, if you took each one of those and added the distances of each one of them up so that what we're forming is a big sphere, the solar system is not actually two-dimensional or a flat plane. It actually has depth and height and all of those things. If you took all of those distances in every direction, added up so that we had a sphere, and then you cut that sphere in half and wanted to know what the diameter would be, 
It would be a multiple of 3,168, like he wrote his name across the universe. Do you think these things could all be coincidence? This causes mathematicians to scratch their head. It really does. And I've picked the most basic examples. Let's, let's go to the next one. If you wanted to find the place Jesus was born on the planet Earth, you'd go to 31.68 North Latitude. <laughs> let's go to the next one. Okay. When we're talking about internal consistency... Geomatra is something of interest, but I don't think Geomatra solves anything. I showed you those things because I wanted you to be excited about your class. <laughs> EOS, however, yes, yes, please. No, I like questions. Uh, pi never stops repeating. It's 3.14, and I can't keep going with it. But when you multiply pi out, that's how you get that. It's the only number in all of mathematics it doesn't stop it is amazing there's one other unique number it applies to a sphere or a circle uh, either when we're doing circumference or radians there's a if you took nine ones set them beside each other and multiplied them times nine ones set beside each other I don't mean one times one times one I mean nine ones a number that is nine ones times a number that is nine ones your answer is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. It's almost like God is trying to tell us something with numbers. Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you I'm not smart enough to get it. That's why I preach and I'm not a mathematician. But I am sure thankful to be able to buy books of people that are smart enough. Now, while I find Geomatra interesting, man, that is terrible. Look at that. That took the Hebrew word Israel and then made it larvae. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, our printer is apparently Gentile. Uh, while geometric to me is amusing, and I do think it's beautiful, you can read about it in Bonnie Gaunt's work called The Number of His Name. ELS I find altogether convincing. This is something entirely different. If we count every letter so that every manuscript is perfect, we need to know something. ELS only works if we're dealing with exactly the same manuscript year after year after year. What ELS is, catch up in my slides, what ELS is, is equidistant letter spacing. Now that may sound crazy. You may think that a guy named Michael Drosnan uh, came up with ELS. That is not true. Jewish sages for centuries have been counting and recounting the letters in Genesis because Hebrew letters have numerical equivalents. And that interested them. And while counting those letters, they notice things. They notice that when you look every seventh letter in Genesis, starting with the first, forgive me, the English equivalent would be a T, every seven letters spells the word Torah. I mean, they notice those kind of things. Now, that's an example, and that is actually not a correct example. I meant to say Israel. But my point here being, what equidistant letter spacing is, is if we want to find Spencer in the Hebrew text of the word, we need to go to the first S we find, count how many letters it took to get there, count the next number of letters ahead, and find the E. Right? Or rather P. <laughs> Whatever it might be. And if you find that with equal distances between each letter it spells a word, that's interesting. If you find that there are a cluster of words, and they all relate, that's even more interesting. If you find that there is a cluster of words 
And not only do they relate to each other, but they relate to the passage that they're found in. That's even more interesting. Anybody in here ever want to be a spy? Come on, Jorge. You want to be a spy? Brandon. Brandon probably wanted to be a spy. So Brandon and I, we want to pass a secret message, right? But all you guys are trying to get us. And we know if Curtis finds this, he'll break the code. So what do I do? I go get a copy of Love and War or whatever it might be. Pride and Prejudice. And I circle it every third letter or something in a word. Or I circle the letters on certain pages that we've determined ahead of time. Every seven pages is the next word. This is what a code is. What do you do when something is encoded in the text and it's incontrovertible that it's there? I want to share some of those with you. If this doesn't blow your mind, then I'm sorry, it's the best I have. Uh, by the way, what this slide should say if our printer didn't die on us is that they discovered that the word Israel is spelled out in the opening passage of Genesis by skipping every seven letters once. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, spelled out in the opening passage of Genesis by skipping every seven letters and once again by skipping every 50 letters within a short passage of only five verses. Um, that didn't sound right. It, what it amounts to is they started with the seventh letter and after the seventh letter, which was the Tav, after the seventh letter, it was every 50 between each one. And when they noticed that, that gave them encouragement that there may be something else there. When we're looking for the word Torah, this is the next slide. Well, it's too small for you all to read. It's worth noting that since they found it in Genesis, when they found Israel in Genesis, they started to look for other words. And they found Torah was encoded into the word uh, of Genesis. They found that it was encoded into the word of Exodus. They could not find it in Leviticus. They did find it in Numbers and did find it in Deuteronomy. And it was at the same number skip, always. Is that significant? Dr. Ma Daniel Michelson calculated that the odds were more than 3 million to 1 against the word Torah being encoded four times by chance alone in the opening verses uh, within the first five books of the Bible. One in, what did I say, three million? One in three million. Is that interesting? Not half as interesting as this. Get to the one that says Deuteronomy. This is some kind of cool. This is Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 22. 17th verse, 22nd verse. Hebrew is written from right to left. The highlighted passages... Or when we get to the first letter that if you were spelling Hitler in Hebrew, we would start with this letter to the right on the screen and move across, and it's a letter skip of 22, and it spells the word Hitler. As interesting as that is, it ought to be more interesting that in the same five verses, also the word Holocaust appear. And not only Holocaust, but also Nazi. Do you think that that was by accident? The man who popularized this in a book called Bible Code determined that aliens must have put it there. <laughs> you should write down the name Yaakov Ramsel. Yaakov Ramsel wrote a book called Yeshua. Grant Jeffries quotes him in the book Signature of God. They borrowed from each other's work. But truthfully, they're drawing on sages that go back a thousand years. These men, by hand, counted these letters and they believed that there were codes in the scripture, and so they found them. Now, the thing about letter skipping like this is if you had one letter wrong, it wouldn't work. Right. 
We haven't gotten to the really interesting part yet. Let's go to the next one. What if I told you that in one passage of Scripture, we could find the word Hitler, Auschwitz, Holocaust, Germany, crematorium for my sons, the Holocaust, plagues, Eichmann, Auschwitz, and Poland, king of the Nazis, genocide, the Fuhrer, Hitler, and Mein Kampf. All grouped in the same passage. Would you think that was significant? Because they've submitted these to peer review journals, and nobody's been able to find flaw with it. It also targets with other texts. Oh, we're getting there. We're getting there. Not only does it not work with other texts like Moby Dick or uh, I mentioned Tolstoy's work earlier, it doesn't work with the Apocrypha. It doesn't work with the Talmud. It doesn't work with the Mishnah. It doesn't work with any other writing. Isn't that something? It doesn't work with any other writing. Now, I'm not saying that you can't fashion a sentence. Uh, a paragraph or two, and in the paragraph have an equidistant letter skip for the word love. What I'm saying is that you can't interlace 40 of them in one passage. You can't take the first two chapters of Genesis and find 23 Hebrew names of trees in it. You can't do things like that. It's beyond the mind of man. In fact, while Hebrew sages knew these were there for a thousand years, it wasn't until the invention of a supercomputer that we could find them with ease. But now anybody with a laptop can do this. I used to have the program, now a crack addict in Corpus Christi has it. So, uh, praise God, maybe he's doing ELS searches for us. Uh, let's move to the next one. These Bible codes are found only in the Orthodox Hebrew text of the Old Testament. No one has ever been able to locate multiple detailed, meaningful Bible codes and clusters within any other Hebrew literature outside the Bible. Experiments have carefully examined other Hebrew writings for the existence of codes, including the Jewish Talmud, the Mishnah, the apocryphal writings of Tobit and Maccabees, etc. They even examined modern Hebrew literature, such as translations of War and Peace. However, the scientists found no significant complex patterns of ELS codes similar to the ones recorded in this book or in any other Hebrew literature outside the Old Testament. Several researchers have also found Bible codes in the Greek text of the New Testament. However, much work remains to be done to verify that. I'm very sorry that the Hebrew and the Greek is not showing up on your screen. I worked hard to make it there. I didn't know that it wouldn't. Let's go to the next slide. What we see here is we see Yeshua in the ELS codes. This is Psalm 22. Are you familiar with Psalm 22 that pierced my hands and feet? All of those scriptures, the scriptures that Jesus quotes on the cross. The word Yeshua is ELS uh, in Psalm 22 with a skip of 50. Uh, the word king is there with a skip of 8. The word branch is there with a skip of only 3. Jesse is there with a skip of 14. Messiah with a skip of 8. Salvation with a skip of 49. And in the psalm that was most quoted by Jesus. Do you find that interesting? Do you think that's good? This one's going to blow your mind. Let's move to the next one. Oh, wow. That's going to blow my mind. I'm going to go blind. Uh, I'll give you this on email. What you have on the screen that you cannot read are the clusters that they found in Isaiah 53. Because in Isaiah 53, for instance, we have... Actually, you can go to the next slide. They may be able to read it. A little bit. In Isaiah 53, you have the word Yeshua is my name. Yeshua 
is my name. You find Yeshua is my name over Isaiah 53.10. Somebody read Isaiah 53.10. Hey mama, it said Yeshua is my name. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. And crush it was the Lord's will to crush him. What's his name? Yeshua. It's encoded into the text. It's encoded into the text in 720 to 740 B.C. Couldn't be discovered until an age of supercomputers. And it's encoded into the text, Yeshua is my name. Of course, so is Nazarene, Messiah, Shiloh, Passover, Galilee, Herod, Caesar, evil Roman city, Caiaphas, high priest, Annas, Mary, the disciples, Peter, Matthew. Every disciple is mentioned except one. You want to guess who's left out? We also find the words, let him be crucified. We find the word cross, pierce, lamb of the Lord, his signature, bread, wine from Zion, Moriah, Obed, Jesse, seed, water, Levites, atonement lamb. All in what? Isaiah 53. And if you wanted to go count these, of course, you can get with Jacob who will teach you the Hebrew alphabet. You can get your computer and go to the Dead Sea Scroll online. And, you know, you can actually count them by hand. We actually have the skip count for you. Isn't that amazing? You ever done a crossword puzzle? Apparently God does too. Isn't that amazing? Who is going to sit and say, oh, no, uh, Isaiah, you know, before they sold him in two, he, uh, he sat around and did this in his spare time. Eloquent, beautiful, poetic Hebrew that has a meaning on the surface has a spiritual meaning behind that, and then has a code that no super spy could ever have created. And it all is relevant to each other. Is that not shocking? There's more than 40 meaningful words in 15 Hebrew sentences. Do you got that? Only 15 Hebrew sentences. Would you think that you could write 15 sentences in English and have 40 equidistant letter spacing English words in them that related to the text? Who could do something like that? It's almost like God did it, isn't it? Is there internal consistency in the word? Maybe we should move on to archaeological evidence. What time do we normally close this meeting? Hey, oh, I'm not doing as bad as I thought. Guys, the internal consistency that is most interesting to me is not ELS, as nice as that is. It's not Geomatra. I find that intriguing. What kills me about the word, and I use that only in the sense that I love it, I don't actually mean that literally, is that when you look at Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. When you look at Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. When you look at Leviticus, he's the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he's the smitten rock. In Deuteronomy, he's a faithful prophet. We see that he shows up in the same ways in all of these. We call this the scarlet cord. Oh, he might be figured as a rock in one and be figured as a lamb in the other, but he's doing the same things. It's the same story told in different ways. By the time we get to Joshua, we could say that he's the captain of the Lord's host. Samson's jawbone and judges, the kinsman redeemer and Ruth. We can do this through every book in the Bible. The last time I did that was a message called Flowers or Five Books. And when I wrote them, I kept them because they're important to me. Other men have done it, and it's probably more eloquent. I know Norman Geisler did it, and it's beautiful. But I didn't just go get a list. I looked in the book to see who he was to me. And you know, people have been doing that for 2,000 years. They've been doing it for 2,500 years. 
They've been searching the scripture and coming to the same conclusion. When we want to talk about internal consistency, what one book has changed so many people's lives on the planet? And it hasn't mattered what country it was. It hasn't mattered what color we were. It hasn't mattered what language we spoke. It hasn't mattered what economic group we belonged to. It didn't matter what political party we belonged to. This book has been changing lives. Is that, is that internal consistency? I would say so. I mean, that would pass an FDA drug screening, wouldn't it? I mean, every six years we have to recall our drugs because, you know, something's wrong with them. We have an ambulance that chases us down and, and a lawyer uh, with it. The Word of God has been subjected to scrutiny all of this time. And it's never been proven wrong on any factual area. Instead, they have theories against it. They have conjectures against it. But you show me any definitive proof that the Bible is wrong. You know, I was only 22 years old and I got a book of, of Mormon. It didn't take me an hour to find more factual errors in it that it mentions panes of glass when there can be no panes of glass, tribes of people that have never lived here. It mentions animals that have never been found on this continent, on this continent. It mentions cities that have never existed. It steals names from works of science fiction published within 100 miles of the kid's house. And it's not subjected to this kind of scrutiny. Do you think there's a demonic force that is trying to erode your love for the Word of God? Archaeological evidence. Now you see what is written here. We have a quote from a brilliant man who says that, uh, you know, archaeology is not there to prove the Bible. Well, I included that quote because that is not the chief purpose of archaeology. But the question is not, does archaeology prove the Bible, but does the archaeology corroborate the Bible? Now, I could never tell you enough about this. I, I've, I've been to Israel twice. The last time I was there, I spent a month there. The people that I, were with, I was with, we're serious about this kind of thing, so we spent a lot of time talking about it. There are 350 cities named in the Bible that you can go to their archaeological site today. You know, you can't do that with the Book of Mormon. You can't go to three cities. You can't. 350. And you know what? Every time they pave a road, every time they fix somebody's plumbing, they find more. <laughs> I mean, that was 2004. We might be up to 400 now. I don't know. I went to the museums there. I saw the artifacts. In fact, secular archaeologists used the Bible to determine where to dig. When they resettled the land of Israel, they planted crops where they had been planted in biblical times. And you know what? They bloomed. Isn't that amazing? When we're thinking of archaeological evidence, I'd like to share this one with you. Archaeologists found more than 1,000 items of jewelry and pottery in nine burial caves across from the Hinnom Valley. And by the way, that's where, where Jesus at hell was like. <laughs> Opposite the southern walls of the old city of Jerusalem. This is at one end of the Kidron Valley, between the Mount of Olives and uh, the temple. The treasures from the past included two silver charms with remarkable biblical inscriptions. These fascinating silver ins inscriptions were con confirmed by archaeologist Gabriel Barquet, to the Associated Press in Tel Aviv. That year was like 1976, maybe 79. While part of the text was lost, the remaining portion revealed that these silver charms contained the oldest biblical inscription ever found. The remaining text recorded the priestly blessing from the book of Numbers. It reads, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance to thee and give thee peace. You know what's interesting about that? 
dates back 2,600 years. That's at least 400 years older than the oldest Dead Sea Scroll. But it matches your book of Numbers, the sixth chapter, perfectly. Isn't that amazing? Does archaeology confirm the Bible? Wouldn't you think that it would have discredited it by now if the Bible was a sham? How many men have set out to do that? But none have succeeded. This one I found the most interesting, and I wish I could find the picture of it, but I, I, I couldn't. I shouldn't have waited till today. Uh, go to the next slide. Tower of Babel. <laughs> there is, in present-day Iraq, a site where there is um, rough glass. I don't know how else to say it. And multiple professors been there through the years, and uh, they found an inscription, and in the inscription, the word Borsippa is mentioned. Great debate has happened over this. Anything that would confirm a biblical text always gets great debate. They pretty well have conclusively proven that Borsippa would be the way that Nebuchadnezzar would have said tongue tower. Now let's read what he wrote. The tower, the eternal house, this is an inscription found on a Babylonian monument that is rebuilt over a previous monument. The tower, the eternal house, which I founded and built, I have completed its magnificence with silver, gold, and other metals, stone, enameled bricks, fir, and pine. The first, which is the house of the earth's base, the most ancient monument of Babylon. I built and finished it. I have highly exalted its head with bricks covered with copper. We say for the other that it is this edifice, the house of the seven lights on the earth, the most ancient monument of Borsippa. Now, if this is all we had, we'd say, he found some earthen bricks and he built something over it and he called it the Tongue Tower. But let's go to the next slide, the second half of the inscription. We dwelt... Nope, back. We, we skipped. Oh, no. It's not there? Oh, it's the other slide. Back to it? It's this there. A former king built it, but he did not complete its head. Since at remote time, people had abandoned it without order expressing their words. Mm -hmm. A people abandoned it because they had no order in their words. Oh. Did you hear that? Mm -hmm. He goes on to say, since the time of the earthquake and thunder, it dispersed the dried clay. What did the Bible say it was made of? The bricks of the casing had been split and the earth of the interior had been scattered in heaps. Merodach the great God excited my mind to repair the building. I did not change the site, nor did I take away the foundation. In a fortunate month and an auspicious day, I undertook to build the porticos around the crude brick masses and the casings of burnt bricks. It goes on to talk about its inscription. right? And he calls it the tongue tower and says somebody in a former time tried to build it, but they lost the order in their words. Nebuchadnezzar has an inscription in present-day Iraq that confirms a Genesis account. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? And you can go there. I mean, <coughs> if you can fight the jihadists off. <laughs> let's, let's move forward. I'm sorry if I got those out of order. I want to be at the southern Saudi Arabia with Joseph's famine. This is an inscription in southern Saudi Arabia, which is northern Yemen. It says, we dwelt at ease in this castle a long track of time. Nor had we a desire but for the region lord of the vineyard. Hundreds of camels returned to us each day at evening, their eye pleasant to behold in the resting places. And twice the number of our camels were our sheep. 
and comeliness like white doves, and also the slow-moving kind. He's, he's painting good years. We dwelt in this castle seven years of good life. How difficult for memory is its description. Then came years barren and burnt up. When one evil year had passed away, then came another to succeed it. And we became as though we had never seen a glimpse of good. They died and neither foot nor hoof remained. Thus fares it with him who renders not thanks to God. His steps fail not to be blotted out from his dwelling. They dated the inscription to the time of Joseph. Do you think that's significant? A confirmation of seven good years. And it doesn't say seven years of famine. But in the poem you can see that it's certainly suggested, is it not? We have a Yemenite, keep going, a Yemenite Arab noblewoman. This is my favorite. I actually had a picture of this too and now don't. In thy name, O God, the God of Hymar, I, Taja, the daughter of Zushafar, sent my steward to Joseph. Understand that the entire line of patriarchs was thought to be mythical. It was said that there was no house of David. It was simply a Jewish fable until they found inscriptions with the word house of David on it. Mm -hmm. And he delaying to return to me, I sent my handmaid with a measure of silver to bring me back a measure of flour and not being able to procure it, I sent her with a measure of gold and not being able to procure it, I sent her with a measure of pearls and not being able to procure it, I commanded them to be ground and finding no profit in them, I shut up here. Whosoever may hear of it, let him commiserate me. And should any woman adorn herself with any ornament for my ornaments, may she die with no other than my death. Mm. Sounds like she's a little bitter that all of her wealth couldn't buy her from Joseph what she wanted. But didn't the Bible say that Joseph would store up grain a fifth every year for seven years to feed the people of Egypt? Who's the only other people that got fed? Israel, who came into Egypt. It's almost like there's somebody who will rise and receive the name. Do you know what Joseph's name was in the Egyptian time? Zathanath Paneah. It means Savior. A little Jewish boy rose to be the Savior of the known world. He was not Pharaoh, but nothing separated him and Pharaoh except the throne. And when he spoke, it was Pharaoh's voice. And when he acted, it was Pharaoh's hand. He had Pharaoh's authority, all of it. And the whole world had to come groveling to him. That story is confirmed. It's confirmed because we can find inscriptions in the area that speak about it. When we move on from the archaeological evidence, we get to prophetic proclamations. Literally hundreds of prophecies about specific people, places, and events were made and fulfilled according to historic accounts. The Old Testament records these prophecies as the very words of God himself. In fact, the Old Testament authors and prophets claim to speak God's very oracles 3,800 times throughout the various books of Hebrew scriptures. Additionally, anywhere between 200 and 400 prophecies were made in the Old Testament about the Messiah, which Jesus fulfilled in his advent, ministry, death, and resurrection. According to one statistical analysis, the odds of fulfilling even eight of these in one chance are 100 million billion. We don't have to go through them all. If we could just look at eight of them, that would be less than one chance in 100 
million, billion. I, you know, I'm one of those people that wasn't sure that was a word. Million, billion. I thought it was a British thing. You know, rather than go through each one of those kind of prophecies, somebody read Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, say my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He declares the end from the beginning. He announces a thing before it comes to pass so that you will know him. Why did God record these things? Why is the ELS codes there? Why were these prophecies given so far before they happened? Do you think it's a mistake that Bethlehem is 31.68? I mean, come on. He does it so that you will trust Him. He does it so that you will put your hope in Him. But when we're thinking about prophecies, when we're thinking about fulfilled things, let's just stick to a few that everybody in the room can understand. Anybody been to a doctor this month? Raise your hand if you've been to a doctor this month. Uh, it would be inappropriate for me to ask you why you went, so somebody tell me a prescription they were given. An antibiotic. And an antibiotic, has that been around forever? No, there was a time we didn't have them, huh? Medicine's not always been as advanced as it is today. Medicine's kind of, I don't know, a practice, isn't it? Now look, MD is not minor deity, despite what the surgeon tells you. They're working at this, friends. Now let's examine something. You can find scroll after scroll of Egyptian medicine from the time that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They prescribed, I mean, the most wonderful things, Charlie. If you had constipation, you could eat cat droppings. If you had an infection in your arm, you could rub urine into it. Yeah. Who don't want to do that, right? Some of them are so grotesque, I really, I'd love to tell you, but my wife would get mad at me. Okay. This is what was going on during the time period that Moses wrote the Torah. The best, most civilized powerhouse super nation in the world wanted you to rub excrement in your wounds to cure an infection. Our medicine's not all of that advanced either. In the year 1845, Dr. Semmelweis, he ran a maternity ward. He had 15% mortality rate. He got the idea, I bet I could wash my hands with lime and let's just see what happens. The 15% mortality rate went to 1% mortality rate. Do you realize that we live in an age where we understand the microscopic world? They didn't discover germs yet. There were theories about germs. But the presence of a germ was not confirmed at that time. I think it was 1914 in Budapest, Hungary. Isn't that crazy? Now, Pasteur, he, he theorized about germs. He thought that they caused life. Boy, was he wrong. <laughs> they also ran that doctor out of town when he said you had to wash your hands or something like here, that. Here was the problem. I'm glad you mentioned it because it's been years since I read it. But, but here, here's the problem. Surgeons of the day light to let you know they were good surgeons. And back then you didn't just hang a diploma on the wall, right? What you did is you wore a lab coat and the more bloody it was, the more surgeries you'd been in. So they were walking disease magnets. Right? They were constant germs. 
This guy started washing his hands with lime and he started saving babies' lives. He died in 1865. You know what he died from? An infection. He had a cut on his hand during a surgery. He got infected. Isn't that something? Now, when you hear the word Semmelweis, do you think Norwegian? No. I wonder if he had a copy of the Torah somewhere. Because when you think about it, we do have passage after passage, like Numbers 31. Numbers 31 teaches us to wash things, teaches us if it can be put through the fire, put it through the fire. It teaches us things about sanitation. I mean, when you scrub something with hyssop, friends, it's an astringent. Now, I'm not about to reduce the Bible to solely a medical book. That if the Bible contains medical data, a thousand years, two thousand years before we understood it to be medical data, would that be significant? Would that be a prophetic fulfillment? How about sanitation during wartime? Men who are smarter than me that have looked at this have said that it was not until the year 1900, at the advent of World War I, where we could kill people fast enough, with machines enough, to kill more people from a puncturing wound than died from dysentery and cholera during war. Isn't that interesting? In all previous ancient wars, more people died from disease when you get people together because they did not know how to handle basic sanitation. Of course, in 1500 BC, Moses said, if you have to do that, go outside the camp, dig a hole, and bury it when you're done. But they didn't know that until the year 1900 that that's why they were dying from dysentery and cholera. Yeah, you didn't have to worry about a bullet killing you. You've seen the movies in the Civil War. What were you worried about if you got shot? Gangrene and them sawing off your legs, huh? Yeah. You were worried about the medical consequences. Not getting shot with a 45 caliber musket. Right? Although I wouldn't want to be shot with that either. Whether we're talking about germs or we're talking about sanitation, my favorite is life in the blood. The Bible speaks about life being in the blood in Genesis 9. Uh, the time period that we're, we're recording the words is somewhere around 1500 B.C., but when were the words supposed to be spoken? Somewhere around 2400 B.C. In 2400 B.C., before the Noah, or just after the Noah flood, God is telling Noah life is in the blood, and Noah's accepting that. He's acting like life is in the blood. You know how George Washington actually succumbed to death? They bled him. His doctors bled him, thinking that he must have too much. That'd make you feel good next time you go to your doctor, huh? You ought to read a book called Dead Doctors Don't Lie. It'll love. Uh, actually, don't read that one. Spend your time in the Bible. The last thing that I want to talk to you about, and then I want to hear what you've thought about these classes. I want to take your questions. I want to look at any scripture that you think might be a problem. In Genesis 17, Abraham is told to do something to his household. There's a covenant given. And God didn't say on the seventh day circumcise your child. He didn't say on the ninth day circumcise your child. What day did he say circumcise your child? That seems totally arbitrary, right? It's like going, oh, well... If you study Geomatra, God wanted there to be a certain mathematical formula. No, 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 no. He wanted the equidistant letter spacing to work out right. Mm. Well, all that may be true. Sounds a little hippie-ish, a little weird, but it may be true. You know what else is the highest in your body 
ever at any time in your life if you're a male child. Vitamin K and prothrombin, which are the two clotting agents in your body. It's 110% saturation. Never, not on the seventh day, not on the ninth day is it that. And it's only in male children. Isn't that interesting? Do you think Moses was doing blood analysis back then? <laughs> if even one of these things was true, and they all are, how much reason would you need to believe it? What reason did he give you to doubt it? How many of you have stayed in, uh, awake at night contemplating whether or not Julius Caesar actually lived? Mm. How many of you spent great time wondering about Homer or, or having written the Odyssey or the Iliad? Mm. Probably you're not doing that, huh? These things uh, are attacked for one reason. They're attacked solely because there's a demonic conspiracy to destroy your faith in the Word of God. I'm going to give you a couple old statistics here. I updated them here recently, but I don't have them. I'm going to give them to you as of 1997. In 1997, there were 71,500,000 Bibles and books that were being distributed around the world. That was 8,162 copies an hour, 195,890 copies every day and night. Never proven wrong. It's written on material that perishes, yet it has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. There is in existence today more than 5,000 copies of the Greek New Testament from that time. Altogether, there is in existence today 24,000 manuscript copies or portions of the New Testament from that era. No other document of antiquity even begins to approach such numbers. In comparison, the Iliad by Homer is second. The second in all ancient documents, 643 copies. Anybody in here been losing sleep over whether or not the copy of the Iliad that you have is the same as the one that Homer wrote? You understand the absurdity here? This extraordinary double standard is there for one reason. It's there so that the wicked old skeptical professor who does not want to accept God's word because if he accepted God's word it might mean something about his own life would like to destroy your faith as well because it makes him feel better if you go to hell with him. Ever been pushed in a pool? So you went gracefully into the pool or did you try to pull the people out around you? It's human nature, friend. We're lost. We're lost and this is our only hope. I don't know what else you may want to cover. Um, I would like to tell you that I completely trust the word. I would like to give you a final note on translations. Translations are one of those topics that people feel like they do about diets or like political parties. My feeling is that all translations have problems. They just do. I look for translations that not only can I read, but I obviously believe has fewer problems than the other. When you ask me what I read, I read a 1984 NIV. When you ask me if you're buying a Bible, what you should buy, I'll probably tell you a New American Standard. If you ask me what I would prefer to read, I wish I could read the Hebrew. I'm working on it. wish I could read the Greek. I'm working on it. What I'm trying to say is, it doesn't matter what language we put it in. 
the substance behind the words is what changes men's lives. Amen. Somebody can call it a dove, and somebody else can call it a pigeon, and that actually exists between German Christians and American Christians. So we have words in some languages and not in others. But somehow or another, God gets it through. By the way, we're going to call ourselves Christians. Don't we have to act a certain way? Yeah. Isn't that what we were talking about this morning? Yeah. You saw a turtle dove sitting outside on a carcass, chewing the flesh off of it, eating the eyeballs out of the socket. That doesn't feel right, does it? Okay. If you came home and on your bird feeder eating seed, you got a big old fat vulture. <laughs> that doesn't feel right, does it? We need to be careful that our actions and our deeds match each other. And the only way you'll ever do that is to know God's Word. It's the only way. It has the power to transform your life. I don't want to be a vulture living on a carcass. I'm sorry, a dove living on a carcass. I don't want to be a vulture eating seed. I want to give birth after my own kind. I want to be the supernatural kind, the new species that Brother Curtis told us about. I only know one way to do that, and that's to let this Word germinate in our hearts. It is the hope of God. It is the hope of man in God. It's, it's everything. The battle that is being fought for this book is everything. I didn't go through all the men like Voltaire who said that in a hundred years there wouldn't be a Bible except maybe in a museum. A hundred years later they turned his house into a Bible distribution society. I mean, God's got a sense of humor. I didn't tell you about the men who were burned at the stake. I didn't tell you that in 1869 in Italy it was still illegal to own a Bible in any language other than Latin. I didn't tell you that. I didn't tell you how it had been fought against and yet survived. But at the end of the day, what will matter for you is the way that you experience it, not what you think about it. Yeah. You've been told about a movie and then when you went to see it, it didn't match the description. Told about a book read it, it didn't match the you have to come to terms with what the word says to you. Follow me. You read it with the right motive, I promise it will change your life. Do I have questions? I finished early. I've never done that before and I don't know what to do. Yes, ma'am. Earlier you